Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. Today is April 27th, 2022, and I am delighted to be here with Jihad Abu Salim and Donna El Kurd. Jihad is completing his PhD in the History and Hebrew and Judaic Studies Program, Joint Program, at New York University for research on Arab and Palestinian intellectual discourse on Zionism, anti-Semitism, and the plight of the Jewish people in Europe between 1870 and 1948. Jihad works as the Education and Policy Coordinator of the Palestine Activism Program at the American Friends Service Committee, and he is a 2022 non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And Dana is an assistant professor at the University of Richmond, a non-resident senior fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, at the Arab Center, Washington, and non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute in the Palestine Program. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Sarah. So our topic today is the Abraham Accords and the broader normalization agreements between Arab countries and Israel over the last couple of years, including the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain in the Gulf, as well as Morocco and Sudan, and how these agreements intersect, intersect with and affect the struggle for Palestinian rights and liberation. The agreements have been criticized for many directions, including how much they have facilitated growth in, for instance, weapons deals. So much so that some people consider them the agreements to be arms deals cloaked as peace agreements. But we will hear much more than that today. Our guests are academics and activists, one a historian, one a political scientist, and we're going to dig into these issues from multiple angles. So Dana, let's start with you. We are going to talk a lot about normalization, normalization agreements. And I want to start off by asking you, please, to define what normalization means in this context. And while you're at it, we're talking also about peace agreements between countries that were not at war. So explain to us, please, just give us the basic uh, vocabulary that we're going to be using. Thank sure, you. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for that question. I think uh, maybe good to establish a baseline. Um, so normalization in this context uh, basically means anything defined as like basically the development of ties between Israel and one of these Arab countries. Um, and it's seen as kind of a violation of the Arab position on recognizing Israel prior to the creation of the Palestinian state, which was reiterated in uh, 2002 with the Arab Peace Initiative. Um, so the idea is that there will be no recognition of Israel as a, you know, uh, official recognition of Israel, um, diplomatic and otherwise, um, before kind of like this conflict comes to a close. Um, so normalization can be overt or covert, um, and um, Israeli uh, officials kind of see it along like three different dimensions. So both cultural normalization, economic normalization, or military ties. So it can kind of, it's kind of a broad umbrella term um, that encompasses a, a variety of different actions. Um, between two governments or between kind of civil society actors and Israeli, uh, you know, civil society actors as well. Um, yeah. Thank you. And the part on on the, the peace agreements, calling them peace. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, forgot the second part of the question. Uh, so in terms of, I mean, I think this is a kind of a big question and we'll probably get to it throughout the, the whole discussion. Um, they're called peace agreements because there wasn't diplomatic recognition be between, say, Bahrain and Israel or uh, the UAE and Israel. But as you mentioned, like these countries were not at war with Israel. They're not even, um, you know, neighboring countries. Um, we have a term for it uh, in, in Arabic. Uh, so it's like, what are they making peace about? Um, really, what it is, is kind of... Um, what I would consider authoritarian conflict management. So it's a way for Israel to kind of bypass the uh, conflict it has with the Palestinians um, and manage it more effectively by enlisting these kinds of alliances. And then on the other side, these countries are also, you know, benefiting from um, their alliances that this kind of peace agreement, quote unquote, facilitates. Um, and in 
you know, controlling their own kind of internal dissent. Um, and so it's, you know, misnomer to call it a peace agreement, but what it actually is, is like, you know, a much bigger question. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep talking about it. <laughs> we will keep talking about it. That was a great start. Thank you. You, you, um, you gave us the foundation and now we can keep building on that. And um, part of why we really wanted to have this conversation with the two of you together is so that we can look at this question of structures and governments and also of how they affect actual people and how actual people are, are maneuvering and navigating. And so, um, so with that in mind, Jihad, in, in January, 2022, The Economist published an article entitled The Arab World Re-Embraces Its Jews. I'm gonna put a link to that in the show notes. And this article describes recent steps taken by Arab governments to change attitudes and discourse around Jews, Judaism, around the state of Israel. And I think a lot of us who are listening today would like to understand what these changes in, in attitudes and discourse are. Can you, can you tell us about them? Can you describe that to us and tell us how they relate to the Abraham Accords? Of course. Um, before I, I answer this question, I'm going to give a little bit of context. Uh, when the Zionist movement uh, started and when political Zionism worked on establishing uh, a, uh, the institutions that would lead to uh, the founding of the state of Israel, um, one of the most important uh, uh, points that Zionism tried to make um, and one of the premises it operated around is the the, the premise of the negation of the diaspora, that Jews can only realize their potential in uh, in the land of Israel, that is historic Palestine, um, and this is where they, they they can realize their nationalist, uh, their national identity and revival and so on and so forth. Um, and th throughout this lens, Zionism says Jews only belong to this geographic space and the diaspora is a place where Jews should not exist. Of course, this can be found explicit and implicit in Zionist discourse. So um, the, the, when after the state of Israel was established and, um, and because of the disruption that Zionism brought about in the region uh, by working to establish a um, an entity, a state uh, that that is exclusively that exclusively works to privilege a certain narrative and a certain history, and of, of course a certain group of people uh, uh, in 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 Palestine, and marginalize you know the Arab history of the land and the Arab Palestinian connections to the land um, that contributed amongst other factors to um, uh, creating a crisis for the Arab world's Jewish communities. I'm not gonna describe the entire history of that. So we 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 were in a situation where the region's historic Jewish communities um, uh, had to uh, you know were were expelled or uh, were or had to make aliyah to Israel and, and move there. And for long there was no talk around uh, the fact that. The, the, these people had connections to the region and until up until recently when um, certain uh, forces within the state of Israel started to talk about the need to uh, recognize that what happened to the to the Arab world's Jewish communities as something equivalent to what happened to Palestinians in the Nakba and were equal and that the, the Jewish communities in the region need to be compensated and so on and so forth. And, and then all of a sudden we have these recent "Quote unquote peace deals, peace agreements, Abraham Accords," and as part of this narrative around the Abraham Accords, all of a sudden we woke up to find that these regimes that just signed these deals, these agreements, or deals with Israel, all of a sudden they are interested in uplifting the stories and narratives about the region's Jewish communities um, and about talk and and and, uh, and talking in positive terms about Jews Judaism Jewish culture the J Jewish faith and even the state of Israel and of course you know um, any person uh, any person would be uh, would be definitely glad to see that in a region that is now uh, that suffers from um, lots of, you know, uh, 
conflicts and turmoil around uh, around because of sectarianism and and uh, and issues of, issues like that that there is um, some sort of a, a a positive development in that regard that we you know we that uh, there is a change and shift in culture and discourse but unfortunately this shift the the the, the superficial re-embrace of the of the region's uh, Jewish communities, or um, the, the 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 sudden interest on the part of uh, state-affiliated cultural institutions, uh, or pundits, or people who we see on social media or affiliated with these states, is is superficial and is serving this uh, this uh, alliance that is. Has been taking place between Israel and these authoritarian regimes, um, and it's and it's dangerous because when the, the Arab public that is critical of these agreements looks at these shifts, um, first of all they don't view it as genuine, and second of all, uh, it reinforces the notion that um, that everything uh, that. Judaism or Jewish culture or any or or any discourse around Jews is connected to these governments, and this isn't the way you fix um, uh, or you overcome the 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 negative perceptions that resulted from Zionism's monopoly of we are the Jewish state, we're establishing a Jewish state for the Jewish people, and and how that resulted in creating or in widening gaps between Muslims, Christians in the region and, and Jews. Uh, so it, it, it creates this, this sense that, you know, um, well, you know, we, the public sees that these shifts are associated with these authoritarian regimes. It's opportunistic, it's not genuine. And, um, and, and the, you know, the, it, doesn't, it does not really solve the problem um, of the, the the mutual negative perceptions that have developed on on uh, with amongst these communities since and before 1948, because associating a positive shift towards Jews, Judaism, and Jewish culture and faith in the Arab world does not need state-sanctioned um, efforts uh, and initiatives by these by these states, but rather requires achieving justice and peace in Palestine, so that then these positive shifts can happen as a result. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And especially the, the last piece of what you said, which is, so I, I'll put it in my own words, because I think that what you just said really was, was a thesis. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the question on the table, which is, can the state-sponsored the state efforts really shift public opinion about Israel and about Jews? Or is what is necessary for is what is necessary to shift opinion actually for there to be justice and, and liberation, human rights for Palestinians. And it seems like the, the governments that we're talking about today, the Israeli governments and the Arab governments doing the normalization efforts are banking on the first, on the former, right? That um, they can cut Palestinians out of the equation. And that is that's the question that we're talking about. And so um Thank you for all of that, Jihad and, and Donna. So on that question, like what do we know about uh, what Arabs think about Israel in these normalization efforts? Yeah, um, I'll answer that question and I'll give some like what we know from polling and things like that. Um, but also I kind of want to like piggyback on what Jihad was talking about and, and kind of continue uh, that line of thinking. Um, it's important to note that if there is kind of a sentiment in in the Arab world um, that is negative towards Jewish people, um, negative towards Israel, negative, you know, all of those things, it's epiphenomenal of the actual cause of that, you know, the cause, which is, as Jihad mentioned, like Zionism and, and the creation of, of the state of Israel, that it was built on ethnic cleansing um, and not so so the causality there is going in one direction and not the other. So it wasn't that there were these kinds of negative sentiments and then that led to a conflict. I think sometimes that's a way that this is framed. Um, uh, what rather, what was happening in Palestine had 
you know, effects across the region and impacted um, uh, Arab Jewish communities um, negatively. And then since then, we have seen kind of a, uh, um, a hardening of attitudes around um, this history. Um, and we see that in, in, the, in the public opinion polling as well. So I used to work for the Arab Opinion Index and they would do these like yearly or like bi-yearly polls um, across the Arab world in Palestine, outside of Palestine. And unlike a lot of other um, kind of mass surveys, um, Israel is like a main, you know, one of the main sections um, that the Arab Opinion Index wanted to, to, to ask about. Um, and so we have questions about, um, you know, what do people think about normalization? What do they think is the biggest security threat in the region? And why? We have the open-ended questions as well. Why did they oppose Israel? Why do they oppose normalization? And so I'll just give, you know, just brief, um, like, tidbits about that. So uh, in the last 2019-2020 Arab Opinion Index, um, when asked across the region, so it was like something like 15 countries, 88% um, of the respondents, um, again, from across the region, opposed normalization with Israel. Um, and the reasons that they opposed normalization with Israel was not to do um, with the Jewishness of the state. It had to do like very directly with either the occupation and Palestinian rights or other um, you know, grievances that they had related to Israel's relationship with the Arab world. So whether it's like racism, the Golan Heights, you know, the previous wars, that, those were the kinds of things that people were citing. Um, and in terms of what like people thought were, so we asked, for example, what's like the biggest threat to regional security and stability? Um, and Israel was always at the top of that list too. So um, something like 89%, yeah, exactly, 89%, sorry, I'm just looking at the data in front of me, um, said that Israel was the biggest threat to, um, to stability and secu security in, in the region. Um, and the, their attitudes towards the Palestinian cause, um, so kind of the, the flip side of that, were always quite positive and, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? So, so basically respondents often linked what was happening in their countries to what was happening in Palestine. And they saw that as kind of a shared issue. It's not some kind of distant or like, simply like a, a an issue of humanitarian concern. Um, maybe there's like some emotional ties. No, they, they considered it part and parcel of the conditions that they were facing in their countries as well. Um, and we can kind of dissect what they mean by that, but like, you know, in, in, in the coming questions, but basically it was something like 80% of like the aggregate, all the respondents from across these 15 countries said that the Palestinian cause was a concern for all of them. Um, and this, you know, varied from country to country. So countries that like are facing more conflict or, inter you know, internal um, violence and things like that might have a lower uh, uh, response rate on that question. Um, but at the end of the day, like this is kind of a regional trend. We don't see any huge outliers in any of these countries. Um, so what that gives me the impression, you know, just from public opinion, but also um, kind of just following the, the discourse in the last couple of years since the Abraham Accords is that people um, see what is happening with these trends as like these state-led alliances as being very negative. Um, and they see it as not only a threat to Palestinians and a way to bypass them, but a threat to themselves um, and a threat to kind of their futures in the region. Um, and as Shahad noted in, in his question, kind of the, the, the side effect is that this would, this is going to um, have a, I don't know what the term is, maybe like a blowback effect on people's relations to Jewishness and, 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 and Jewish communities, but yeah. Sorry to ramble, but that, that's my... <laughs> Thank you for all of that. Um, super interesting. And I wanted to ask you if you would talk a little bit more actually about what we know going on inside the specific countries. And, and also, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, listening to this as I am, how you know that you can trust these polls? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, so we don't have polling from within Bahrain or the UAE. We do have polling in, in the last Arab Opinion Index from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, so I'll get to those in just a second. Um, so we can't really tell in terms of like, you know, 
general public sentiment, aside from having kind of a deep, in, deep uh, knowledge of the case and, 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 and things like this. So in Bahrain, um, again, I don't have public opinion polling to cite, but there has been a lot of um, anger and um, backlash uh, related to the Abraham Accords, um, both in the lead up to and after. Um, because Bahrain has a very long history of uh, pro-Palestine activism, a very rich and, and, and uh, um, active civil society. And Palestine in particular is a, is a, is a topic that unites um, many segments of Bahraini society, um, which can be divided about other things. But Palestine is this like very crucial uh, uh, unifier. And so what we saw in the lead up to the Abraham Accords, when there was kind of a hint that this might happen, were people actively talking about it, noting the coming restrictions. I can, you know, I can give examples of that as well. Um, for example, um, the Bahraini government passed a civil service bylaw uh, right before the passing of the Abraham, or sorry, the, the signing of the Abraham Accords um, to limit anybody who works for the government or has ties to like a government institution from um, criticizing the foreign policy of the state. So that happened, that was like preemptive. And so people noted, they were like, oh, this is, this is a more of a, um, you know, the, the, the space is tightening. Um, and then after the Abraham Accords, you know, there were immediate uh, crackdowns on a lot of different uh, civil society groups in Bahrain, but people have still you know, tried to express their dissent. And um, there were just uh, um, uh, events in the um, Bahraini Anti-Normalization Office, like uh, I think this week or like a few days ago. Um, and so this is, you know, that kind of gives, an, gives us an indication that um, this is not like a fringe uh, sentiment in Bahraini society. Um, now the UAE is quite closed off. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a different uh, uh, dynamic. Um, the Emirati government has been quite proactive in shutting down civil society, particularly after the Arab Spring. So, for example, there was a committee against normalization that was shut down in 2013. Um, and Emirati activists have mostly been in exile um, discussing this. But with my conversations with them, you know, they they say that there is a huge level of fear and control um, and people are uh, much less uh, able to to discuss their opinions on these things. So they do worry because there is such a closed off space and not many alternative viewpoints uh, available to people that, you know, some segment of society might start um, um, taking on the, the, the state's position vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Um, but at the same time, there is, as I said, like a long history of, of uh, um, Emirati kind of public sentiment towards Palestine and Palestine being kind of uh, uh, a really important topic in the education system and the family in kind of from a religious framing as well. And the Emirati activists I spoke with said that like they get a lot of messages from people, kind of anonymous messages saying that they're really happy to hear this kind of alternative voice that they're providing from, from outside. But again, we don't have public opinion polling, but if that's any indication, there is some significant uh, pushback against the Abraham Accords and that it is seen as problematic and not uh, representative. Um, so uh, in terms of like, what do we know about these polls and like how, how, like how much can we trust them? Um, that is a very, you know, valid question. Um, we do these polls in a variety of different countries and we take, re you know, representative samples from a variety of different countries. Um, and in the Saudi Arabian uh, sample, we did phone surveys rather than in-person surveys for obvious reasons. Uh, there are always problems with polling. Now, there is some research to suggest that the uh, unreliability of Arab world polls is not that different from, you know, any kind of like polls that happen in other parts of the world, kind of the same margin of error. Um, but we also took steps. Uh, I personally took steps when I was working at the Arab Opinion Index to get around some of these kinds of um, uh, biases in the in the data and and you know the biases of like self-reporting um, in the data um, by doing kind of survey experiments and things like that to get around 
uh, people's inability to express themselves. So we would ask questions in different ways to, to, to gauge at the same thing, but ask indirectly. Um, so there are these kinds of tactics that we have used in the Arab Opinion Index to get around um, um, the issue of, you know, underlying authoritarianism in all of these places. Um, but it's particularly, you know, for ex I'll, I'll just give one last example. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but one last example. In some, most countries, um, talk, you know, stating these things about Palestine or Israel is not necessarily off the table. Um, so it's not the most uh, worrying sentiment to express. In the countries that have seen these kinds of movements towards normalization, such as Saudi Arabia, um, there are huge uh, non-response rates on those questions. So that in itself is an indication. So like a question that in Saudi Arabia three years ago, we could ask about Palestine and we'd get some, you know, similar trends in Saudi Arabia as other countries, other neighboring countries. Today, there's like a 30, 40% non-response rate on that same question. And okay, it's not a direct answer, but it gives us an answer that people are afraid to talk about this more now because their country is moving or, or like expressing signaling uh, about this issue. So anyway, lots of uh, in the weeds things about surveys because I'm a little bit of a survey nerd, but that's how we get around those 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 problems. That's that's super helpful. Um, and and also your the specific examples are really interesting and useful and helpful for understanding. Um, and also what you just said about the polling and um, and in particular, the reading of of silences. And I I wonder if it's that people are are afraid of responding and or don't know, don't maybe don't know where they are. So we did a list experiment in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I won't get into what list experiments are, but essentially um, we got this non-response rate and then we asked them, OK, out of a list of these things, how many bother you and we saw that like they didn't have to specify which of those things but when we added Palestine as one of those things that are like important to, to them and it's it's on their mind we saw significant results so it, it gives us an indication that like they know like they have an opinion they just don't think that that's the right opinion to give uh -huh. but when given another way of expressing that they are concerned about this without specifying, they, they, they do that. We do have significant results on that. So anyway, yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's, no, that's great. I appreciate it. And as a, as a social scientist, I love, I love uh, hearing the method. And I, I wonder if we have an audience to bring you back just to unpack how, we, how you do polling in places where people are not free to share opinions, um, which is a super interesting, to me, it's a super interesting topic. So. Um, so thank you for all of that. And um, and I also hearing you talk and Jihad, I think you were also sort of uh, saying something in this direction. I just wanna name that it, it feels like what we're talking about is um, people's opinions in the state approach to Israel and, and also to Jews and Jewishness and Jewish life and, and expressions of Jewish life. That's on the one hand, but on the other is also identification with Palestine and Palestinians. And, and knowledge about um, Palestinian life. And, and I wonder how much those two things are separate and how much, and, and also how much they, they overlap in terms of um, what's shifting right now in these countries. And so Jihad, I, wanna, I want to come back to you because you started earlier by talking to us about these, um, you called them superficial state-sponsored, they were state-sponsored state efforts to cultivate acceptance of Israel. Um, and as part of that acceptance of Jews and Jewishness and a, and a total alignment of Jews and Jewishness with the state of Israel. And this in a region that has such an ancient history of Jewish community and, 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 and Jewish life. Um, and you talked about how problematic and, and potentially harmful those efforts are. So will you, will you expand? I will give a few examples uh, based on perusing the, the social media discourse around these issues over the past few years and some of the trends that I have noticed, and I'm sure Dana did too, uh, in terms of how the, uh, these bands of online trolls who have been uh, spreading um, these notions um, in support of these 
state-led efforts to normalize with Israel, um, how they have been doing that. So I guess the, the, the shortcut for them or the easiest way to encourage their fellow citizens and to you know uh, push for this shift was um, was not through number one talking about the rich and diverse um, history of Jewish communities in the region, but rather through attacking Palestinians, dehumanizing them, uh, denying their narrative, and using um, racial uh, discourse, and sometimes. Um, you see people like resorting to uh, the Quran to say, well, look, the Quran talks about the children of Israel, but it does not mention the Palestinians. So you see these really bizarre uh, ways of talking about this that that also, you know, um, are borderline fascistic and racist and dehumanizing and want to, to deprive Palestinians of their humanity and dignity and their connection to their land and of course deny their that their struggle is a legit is, is a legitimate one. So we have seen that for the over the past few years. Um, you know, I I don't think uh, uh, some sort of a systemic study has been conducted around this pro-Israel Arab discourse. Um, that can also be borderline philosemitic, right? Like the 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 for them the, those uh, those people, some of whom are journalists, some of whom are uh, politicians, some are just social media figures, uh, influencers with with uh, with large following uh, on social media. They 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 keep repeating these things. They keep repeating Zionist myths. Um, that have been um, uh, that have been uh, you know uh, uh, that even Israeli historians fought and proved uh, untrue, like Palestinians sold their land, or so you see all of this kind of discourse, and it's telling. It's telling about the kind. This isn't a positive change in the sense that uh, on a grassroots level, uh, the the region is healing from the wounds that resulted from almost a century um, of uh, Zionist settler colonialism in Palestine and its, and its repercussions. But as I mentioned, it is a, a, a cynical and opportunistic uh, superficial uh, combination of efforts by states and state-affiliated uh, spokespeople who, uh, who just seek to justify this these alliances and these peace agreements um, and these military alliances but also uh, you know th there has been a term that has been circulating in in uh, in arab and palestinian intellectual circles uh, recently um, i don't know exactly who came up with this term but it's been it's been widely circulated um, and it's one that that talks about the ongoing israelization of the region in terms of um, making Israeli um, uh, products in in the field of surveillance and security and and repression universal in the region, and that these agreements and these alliances allow for the spread of technologies like the NSO Pegasus spyware, right? So um, so. As these alliances unfold and as people begin to experience their, their impact and repercussions, there is a cultural component. And in no way, I think we, we should view this cultural component as positive because as I mentioned, it is a cynical one and is an, it's an opportunistic one. Uh, because let's say in, in a few years, this, these alliances fall apart because you know, an Iran deal is achieved, there are geopolitical shifts. I, I am confident that these states will will order these online trolls and these state-affiliated influencers to, you know, just shift their, their narrative right away. And that's why I think, going back to what I talked about earlier, um, uh, 
I don't tend to romanticize the region that I come from or the Arab world or any other place. Uh, pe you, people, uh, uh, you know, people are never immune from uh, 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 experiencing things that are happening in Palestine, Israel now, in, in historic Palestine and in other parts of the Arab world. There, there, there has been a long history of colonialism, settler colonialism, other authoritarianism and so on and so forth. And so long as there are no solutions that deal with the roots of these problems and address them and address the historical injustices, um, the, the, the cultural and intercommunal um, perceptions, negative perceptions and, and negative discourses that, that result out of this, out of these realities won't be fixed in, in a top-down uh, method. The, you cannot fix the, the, the issue of, let's say, you know, um, in, in the United States, there is a lot of tension today. And we all see how these superficial attempts on the part of um, addressing racism in 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 the through um, uh, some gestures that are made on the part of um, the United States, you know, like liberal communities uh, that they pay lip service to the question of social and racial justice here, without actually engaging in transformative. Uh, initiatives and efforts and struggles that uh, that can address the very roots of the systemic racism that exists in the U.S. So I think we can draw these parallels, um, and we can always, you know, think about uh, how how perceptions change. But I think the the real question is, it what what does it take for uh, for people to to change their perceptions of other communities that are the that, that they're at odds with? And we should be careful of, of these state-led efforts because of how dangerous and cynical they are. Thank you so much, Jihad. Yana, do you want to, to, to follow up on that and, and to, to say some more? Yeah, I, I was just thinking while he was talking is that they're, they're, they're weaponizing. These, these state-led efforts are weaponizing these things. But as Jihad said, like it's convenient right now to act like very happy with Jewish communities and it might not be so convenient in the future. And, and that is not a way for people to people ties to be, to be built or to have these, um, have these issues resolved. Um, and part of the reason why I think, uh, you know, Arabs connect the two um, is this underlying kind of historical context of settler colonialism in Palestine and no true independence in the rest of the Arab region, no actual democracy, no actual accountability. Um, and so that's where they see this shared struggle. That's it, It's not a separate thing. It's two sides of the same coin. Palestinians don't have, you know, statehood, self-determination, dignity, but we also don't have those things just in a different form. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, in some parts of the Arab world, uh, authoritarianism has been just as vicious as, as ethnic cleansing under settler colonialism. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I would add. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. So I, I want to shift the angle for a moment. And, and um, Dana, I want to ask you, to how are Palestinians, and I, I don't just mean the two Palestinians on this podcast, but Palestinians more broadly responding to the normalization agreements. And um, what, are their, what are the dynamics, what are their responses tell us about regional dynamics more broadly? Um, yeah, so I have some polling data, but then also kind of like my personal perceptions um, based on like what I see on social media and things like that. Um, I think Palestinians feel abandoned uh, they feel um, quite angry about the conditions in the Arab world, about how they see these, as Jihad mentioned, these influencers, these Emirati influencers, things like that, that that engage in just some of the most, you know, egregious anti-Palestinian rhetoric and racism, and and as he said, like repeating, um, repeating myths and tropes that Israelis 
like the okay well some of the worst israelis do but like most <laughs> israelis don't engage in that cheap kind of propaganda to the same degree at this point um and palestinians see that and i think that there is a growing sentiment in palestine of um frustration with the rest of the arab world and we see that also in polling so like for example um in the same poll that i mentioned um Palestinians were actually like when asked about whether or not the Palestinian cause is a concern for all Arabs or just a concern for Palestinians only. Um, most other like most other countries that were polled, most other respondents um, had high rates of like saying that the Palestinian cause is a concern for all Arabs. But the the lowest rate was in Palestine itself. <laughs> Palestinians are increasingly kind of seeing their causes like, you know, less um an arab issue than than other arabs see it um but but it is a function of this kind of frustration and this feeling of abandonment as a result of these state-led policies because you know people you know palestinians are normal people they they conflate they conflate the state-led policy with what they think is you know uh public opinion or um they assume that people believe the same things that their governments are doing especially when they see these kind of online campaigns and the social media influencers it gives them it gives people a veneer of like um like an organic kind of pro-israel sentiment when it doesn't really exist and most people are you know will consume social media and not notice these these issues um obviously there is a, a, another segment you know maybe more politicized activists um that do recognize that these are shared struggles and they still discuss it in those terms. So I was on this call, for example, with two Palestinian activists and um, uh, the group Qatar Youth Opposed to Normalization. So Qatari activists were hosting a call with Palestinian activists. And so one of the questions posed to the Palestinian activists was um, like, what can we do to help you? And the Palestinians responded and said, you know, work on uh, improving democracy and accountability in your own states. And so there is still that sentiment, maybe in a smaller segment of society, but I do worry about kind of general public opinion trends because Palestinians are absorbing a lot of this kind of anti-Palestinian like vitriol um, in social media that that is problematic. Um, I also wanted, I'm, I'm sorry to, to talk too long, but I also wanted to kind of um, touch on some of the research I've done regarding like pro-Palestine groups in, in the Gulf and in the broader Arab world? Absolutely, please. Yeah, because I think it illustrates why, um, why an Emirates or why a Bahrain or other countries that have maybe not signed an Abraham Accords but pursued under the table normalization view pro-Palestine activism uh, you know, so uniquely. Um, so I've, I, just released a paper, but I'm, I'm working on a kind of broader project related to kind of the role of pro-Palestine activism in these countries. And um, I argue in that work that this kind of acti activism is particularly threatening to these regimes um, because it's not like circumscribed to just Palestine issues. Um, so people who get involved in pro-Palestine activism they're introduced to this idea of like political agency. They begin to demand things of their government. Um, they build like, they, they engage in like citizenship building practices. And that leads to these spillover effects in broader civil society in some of these countries um, that can, you know, essentially, instead of just talking about Palestine, people make these linkages. They, they make the linkage between what's happening in Palestine and their anger about what's happening in Palestine and their advocacy around that to also the fact that their governments are not representative of them to also that their foreign policy is not representative of them to also then questioning regime like narratives and regime type and why do we have monarchies you know what I mean so that kind of trend is facilitated by pro-Palestine activism in a kind of a unique way in the Arab world and I think that's why a country like the Emirates or Bahrain or Saudi or any of these other countries see it as such an important target and why we're seeing kind of more um, repression around the Palestine issue because it's more than Palestine. They recognize it's kind of uh, um, uh, like it's, uh, sorry to use this term, it's usually used for like climate change, but 
like it's a palestine is a threat multiplier <laughs> it can amplify other issues um yeah so just wanted to kind of add that in there as well i think it's an important part of explaining these trends that's terrific thank you that's that's so helpful um and jihad i actually wanted to ask you to to draw from your research now also um and talk to us a little bit about um so you're, you have been researching and looking at it and, and really uncovering, writing, writing this history of um, Arab and Palestinian writings on Jews and Judaism and Zionism and, and threats to Jews, anti-Semitism in Europe before 1948. And um, so drawing on, on what, you've, what you've learned and what you, what you teach, can you tell us, like, what from history can guide the present and and maybe the future? What do people need to know thinking about this, these normalization agreements and thinking about what actually does exist within a, a, a Palestinian cultural and intellectual history? Um, I will try to be concise uh, given that <laughs> we were approaching the end of this uh, podcast, but um, I think, so my, my research deals with how Arab and Palestinian intellectuals, writers, activists uh, wrote about, talked about um, these different issues related to Zionism, the Zionist movement, the quote unquote Jewish question in Europe, um, the spread of European anti-Semitism. Um, from the mid 19th century into uh, the uh, mid 20th century. And of course, like any other part of the world, there are diverse opinions, perspectives that are informed by the ideological choices, affinities of those writers and, and, and their positionality in their communities, uh, but also how they viewed themselves as part of broader transnational global trends, political and ideological and so on and so forth. So in my research, I look at, um, as a historian, I look at change over time and I, and I look at how um, the, in, as part of the Arab Nahda, the Renaissance, uh, the, the revival of uh, literature and arts in the, throughout the, uh, the second half of the 19th century, how Pe different people wrote about the place of Jews, Judaism, and then and how the and, and then I look at how the advent of Zionism and the, the Zionist movement on the Zionist project on the ground led to gradual shifts in these perceptions, uh, culminating in 1948. Um, so as part of my research, I look at early early receptions and early engagements in the Arab world with um, the uh, creeping anti-Semitic discourse, modern anti-Semitic discourse coming from Europe through translation um, and with, um, with European and Western visitors coming to the region. Um, and then I, I look at uh, other chapters like World War II, how did people deal with World War II and um, and of course the Holocaust and, and all of these questions. And, you know, I, I I'm, I'm, in my work, I engage against uh, certain myths that uh, uh, obscure how people in the Arab world in general, and in Palestine in particular, dealt with these questions. Uh, there, is, uh, there are genres of academic and non-academic literature that portray Arabs and Palestinians as inherently anti-Semitic, pro-Nazi, and so on and so forth. Um, I challenge all of these things uh, through my research. I show that in, in the late 19th century, um, intellectuals in the Arab world, uh, they rejected um, 19th century forms of anti-Semitism, uh, engaged and, and they celebrated uh, Jewish writings that uh, that resisted anti the spread of anti-Semitic discourse um, at the hands of 
people whose names are, uh, for example, Goldwyn Smith was a British Canadian notorious anti-Semite. There is uh, the main the main uh, hall at Cornell University is still named after him. Um, and I look, for example, this is one example of how the Arab press celebrated um, Jewish uh, intellectual resistance and in, uh, against this anti-Semite. And then, you know. Fast forward, I look at how uh, intellectuals like Muhammad Najati Sidqi, uh, a Palestinian intellectual, uh, one of the uh, people who were influential in the Palestine Communist Party, uh, wrote against Nazism during World War II and, and challenged the, uh, the Nazi ideology and encouraged people not to fall uh, for uh, propaganda coming from the Ber uh, the Berlin radio and so on and so forth. So we have all of this history. And as I as I'm, I'm still working on, on my project, and as I'm looking at it, I see that it it took um, it took a Nakba, right, like a, an event uh, as big as the Nakba to to uh, to uh, uh, as, as a turning point after which um, some there were major changes in, in perception. Um, and, uh, and and, and, and that's stilling in, in the sense that um, even before the Nakba, even before 1948, uh, there was still a sense of, um, uh, in, in the Arab world, of uh, viewing the Arab world's Jewish communities as part of the region, the, despite, of course, the, some of the incidents that happened in Iraq um, and, and, um, and, and that, you know that Palestinian writers and intellectuals were were keen on um, uh, on thinking about Palestine and its future as a place where everybody can still live. Of course, they wanted an independent Arab Palestine. They they wanted they didn't want the Zionist project to succeed in transforming the country because they understood that a tra the transformation of the country into a Jewish majority state will entail the mass expulsion of Palestinians. So people were interested in other formulas of common living of coexistence. Um, but then the Nakba becomes this turning point after which we see these negative perceptions. Uh, 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 coming to the surface, and and we see the how the gap begins to widen culturally uh, and and dis discursively uh, between between the Arab world and Jewishness and Jewish communities. And it's because, I mean, there are many reasons, of course, but because Israel says, "I am the Jewish state." Henceforth, the, you know, when people look at the, this exclusive Jewish state, they they will. They will um, they will reject it on its own terms. So, uh, for example, we have we we see now that there was a um, a museum uh, or an exhibit um, to uh, about the Holocaust in Dubai, which you know, uh, and, and I think it, it it is a shame that, for example, we we don't get to talk today about how. The Arab world was one of the most important fronts for uh, that helped in defeating the Nazis in, during World War II, and and we we and and, and how this entire history of Arab um, and and uh, uh, rejection of World War II, um, you know, of of Nazism and fascism during World War II were things that um, are no longer celebrated. Um, or are not talked about enough because of how 1948 would would uh, would eclipse all of the all of this historical era and introduce a new set of anxieties and um, and uh, unresolved questions that we're still grappling with. So to uh, to uh, to sideline what happens in Palestine and what has been happening in Palestine and to introduce. Um, a desire on the part of regimes that are engaged in starving and, and launching brutal wars against people in Yemen, for example. And at the same time, we see that they, they, they want to raise awareness around the Holocaust. Raising awareness about, around the Holocaust, of course, is a, is, a, is a good thing. But when it comes from, from regimes that are engaged in war crimes and that are engaged in repression, I think we need to question that. So, in, 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 so my research, through my research, I hope to 
to reclaim this history that has been missing, but also present it as, as a way where, um, where when, so that we, when we envision a different future, um, we can look back into that time and see how despite everything that has been happening, people were able to, to look at these questions in a nuanced and in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a thoughtful, in a thoughtful way. Um, but at the same time, uh, my research shows that because of 1948 and, and how, and how disruptive it was, um, a lot of these efforts cannot, won't mean anything today without resolving what happened in 1948. So that's basically what, what I hope to do and, and what I'm writing about. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you both. There's so much more that we could that we could talk about and, and keep going into and, and, and go deeper on. Um, I'm so grateful that you both took the time to, to join us today. I want to ask each of you one last question. It's this, and it's the same question. Um, and, and forgive me for asking a question in the voice of the, of the critics, but I actually think that it's really important that you, um, I want to hear your answers. And also I think that our listeners will really want to hear, hear your answer to this question, which is that um, people who are against normalization agreements are, are obviously against peace, that, that there is this accusation that if you criticize the Abraham Accords, or if you oppose them, that you are just anti-peace. And the problem is you, because all normalization is good. All peace agreements are good. And I want to hear you respond to that, please. And, in, and you'll instruct us in your response. And that'll be it. Okay, maybe I'll take a stab at it first, Shahad. Um, so I would say, like, this is peace in name only. This is not, this is not real peace. This is, as I mentioned at the beginning, authoritarian conflict management. This is uh, state-led attempts to um, gloss over ongoing injustices and past injustices and, and force uh, um, kind of a, a, a stability on the, the parties of this conflict um, across the Arab world that does not address, as Jihad has mentioned, the underlying issues. Um, and I oppose these kinds of normal, I, I oppose normalization and I oppose these kinds of peace agreements because I want a long lasting peace. Um, this is not going to generate a long lasting peace. This is, you know, a Band-Aid on a ticking time bomb. Sorry for mixing all my analogies, but this is not, you know, this is not going to resolve the issue. Palestinians are not going to quiet down they're not going to accept. And the rest of the Arab world, um, as we've seen in the last decade, has a, has a way of surprising us. So uh, yeah, that would be my answer. Um, real peace does not come through authoritarian means. Great. Thank you. Yeah, Jihad. Um, all, all I can say is that we have tested this uh, experiment uh, you know, closer, like in, with, we, didn't, we don't have to go further to the Gulf or to the UAE or Bahrain. We have tested this, the same uh, uh, approach in historic Palestine itself. And we saw how um, uh, a peace process that uh, was imposed by an international community uh, that decided to work with an, with an anti-democratic corrupt Palestinian leadership um, uh, against the will of the Palestinian masses and engaged in a, in a peace process to cultivate um, a security apparatus in, uh, in the occupied territories to uh, police Palestinian communities um, and use an iron fist against Palestinians to uh, secure Israel's interests. And uh, while at the same time, uh, we saw how Israel continued with its occupation and, and its uh, uh, you know, uh, practices of settlement, land grab, and so on and so forth, that it's been 30 years since the beginning of that peace process, which was celebrated in the West, which 
um, conservatives, liberals in, in the US and elsewhere celebrated as a huge achievement. And now 30 years later, we see where that got Palestinians and we see where that got the region. So, um, and, and a lot of people, including Edward Said and others criticized that approach um, as it was happening. And people dismissed these criticisms as ones that are not interested in peace. But we see now, 30 years later, we see where that guts and it's not, and, and, and wherever we are now, it's not a pleasant place. So, um, and that proves uh, an important thing that peace uh, uh, needs to happen in, in ways that do not obscure the fundamental roots of the problems that we're dealing with. And that takes into consideration the desires, the wishes um, of the people who, who are affected by these realities. Um, but a top-down approach um, uh, that is imposed from above that only entertains the interests of uh, certain elites and fewer, few groups of people that definitely does not achieve people-to-people -people peace, that does not address the injustices, that does not create the conditions for uh, genuine reconciliation to happen. Thank you, Jihad. Thank you, Donna. Thank you both of you for sharing your time and analysis with us today. And thank you to you, all of our listeners, for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can also watch a video version of this podcast and of our others on YouTube, on FMEP's YouTube channel. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin, signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. Thank you.